Nuclear Ukraine, month two. If there is any good news, it's that the Russian troops have abandoned Chernobyl, site of the world's worst nuclear accident and still highly contaminated with radioactivity. But the dangers and exposures created by their occupation continue to be minimized by the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, the United Nations organization turned to by governments and media for the so-called official word on what's going on. Throughout the ongoing crisis in Ukraine, in connection with nuclear worries from shelling damage at the 6th nuclear reactor site in Zaporizhia in the south, to reports that radioactive Russian troops have been sickened and one is reported dead from what is being called acute radiation poisoning. And yet, the IAEA has consistently downplayed the nuclear dangers we faced. It makes no sense until a genuine nuclear expert explains. That's what you would expect from an industry spokesman who didn't want to damage his industry in any way and wanted to minimize panic and fear and concern, especially since all the way across neighboring Europe at the moment, because of the hydrocarbon fuel problem, gas and, and oil, everybody's talking about the prospects of new nuclear. So IAEA, who are there to promote new nuclear, don't really want any particular damages to occur to the image. Well, when you hear a European-based expert in nuclear matters like Tim Deere Jones, who not only talks about the facts of what's going on in Ukraine regarding Chernobyl, but is able to read through the stories to paint the picture of what's happening to the people as part of the ongoing radiation impact, and the IAEA's dedication to deflecting concern and minimizing panic, You'll understand exactly how dangerous it is in that giant, uncomfortable seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we examine what's been happening at Chernobyl as part of the ongoing war in Ukraine. Yes, Russian troops have fled, but that is not the end of the story. We'll be talking with UK-based marine biologist Tim Deere Jones, who has been closely following events in Ukraine especially the nuclear aspects, and has access to news sites not readily available here in the U.S. We'll look at not only the sequence of events in Chernobyl, starting with the Russian takeover on February 24th, but bring up the many times and ways that there has been radiological contamination and how the International Atomic Energy Agency has minimized or deflected concern managing panic and protecting the nuclear industry's image rather than getting honest with the world about what the dangers there truly are. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, 
and more honest nuclear information than will be raised by any of the candidates in the U.S. midterm elections. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 5th, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. We'll be covering much of the news from Ukraine during this week's featured interview, but I wanted to point out that many headlines came through that Russian troops withdrawn from Chernobyl were suffering from, quote, acute radiation sickness. To understand acute radiation sickness or syndrome, we have available a PDF download from the Center for Disease Control at cdc.gov, which is a fact sheet for the public on what it consists of. Briefly, people exposed to radiation will get acute radiation syndrome if radiation dose was high, was able to reach internal organs, the person's entire body or most of it received the dose, and it was received in a short time, usually within minutes. You can access the full fact sheet at our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 563. On March 2nd, Russian bombers armed with nuclear weapons entered EU airspace before being intercepted by fighter jets. Swedish media reports four of Vladimir Putin's warplanes swooped in over the Baltic towards the Isle of Gotland. Stockholm confirmed the interception earlier this month, but reports about the jets being armed with nukes have only emerged now. Here in the U.S., the uranium industry is trying its hardest to take advantage of the tragedy in Ukraine by pushing for price controls and taxpayer subsidies. House Representative Raul M. Grijalva of Arizona chair of the House Natural Resources Committee, said, For years, the uranium industry has stoked misleading fears about supply threats and ballooning demands in order to fast-track domestic mining, when the majority of our uranium already comes from domestic mining or from our allies. Even nuclear power plant operators have affirmed that our uranium needs can be met safely and at lower cost by purchasing from the international market. But what the industry's price controls and subsidies would do is allow currently unprofitable operations to come back online, most especially in the Grand Canyon region, where in 2011 alone, uranium speculators filed more than 10,000 mining claims in or around the Grand Canyon, putting that national treasure and the water supply of the native Havasupai people at risk of contamination. We'll link to the article. At the decommissioned Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Massachusetts on Cape Cod Bay, plant owner Holtec International has locked out 60 skilled union workers who have been responsible for maintaining the site for several decades. Holtec is reportedly replacing the unionized laborers with untrained workers who don't know the jobs or the related safety standards and that despite a $0.25 an hour pay increase for the non-union workers, Holtec was having difficulty finding replacements who could successfully pass the required tests. As one concerned local citizen put it, they've got Homer Simpson running the plant. And despite strong community and state opposition, Holtec is still keeping nuclear water discharge into Cape Cod Bay as an option. Holtec is also decommissioning the Oyster Creek nuclear generating station in New Jersey and considering the possibility of making it the site of its first small modular nuclear reactor. Similar problems in Japan, where four local organizations in northeast Japan 
have demanded that partially treated radioactive water from the damaged Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant be disposed of by means other than ocean discharge. Protesting groups are the Consumers Cooperative and Fisheries Cooperative Associations of Miyagi Prefecture and Fukushima Prefectures. They submitted a petition with more than 179,000 signatures collected since last June to the plant's operator, Tokyo Electric Power Company, and the industry minister. In France, Greenpeace activists broke into the construction site of the Flamanville EPR nuclear reactor to protest against pro-nuclear candidates in the French presidential elections. Launched at the end of 2007, the Normandy project is 11 years overdue, and its cost has risen to 12.7 billion euros, this according to the EDF, the French multinational electric utility company. The original cost, announced in 2006, was 3.3 billion euros. Greenpeace France has called for an independent assessment of the viability of EPR nuclear reactors. In the UK, Britain could build up to seven new nuclear power stations, with Prime Minister Boris Johnson telling his friends in the nuclear industry that he wants 25% of electricity generation in the UK to come from nuclear power by 2050. This push for expansion is being credited to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Of the eight UK nuclear plants currently in operation, all but one are due to be switched off by 2030. Johnson cited France, which now generates the majority of electricity using nuclear power stations, without acknowledging that currently 20 French nukes, more than one-third of that country's 56 nuclear reactors, are currently offline. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. Artificial intelligence as opposed to genuine intelligence, is being proposed to help in decommissioning the Sellafield nuclear site in the UK. The former nuclear power generating site includes nuclear fuel reprocessing, nuclear waste storage, and nuclear decommissioning. A nightmare of trifectas. And we're going to trust the decommissioning to robots? Looks that way. Sellafield's chief operating officer, Rebecca Weston, said robotics and artificial intelligence would make nuclear decommissioning, quote, safer, faster, and at less cost. And as I pointed out repeatedly on this show, two words you never want to hear in connection with decommissioning anything nuclear is faster and cheaper. Because let's face it, if you're doing it on the cheap, what could go wrong? It's only nuclear. And that's why... All of you involved with Sellafield decommissioning, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, yes, Nuclear Hot Seed's new website is up and it's getting better all the time as we continue to make changes and load more episodes. These pages load faster, the content is way more searchable, and what you see is only part of what we get because there is now behind-the-scenes state-of-the-art functionality to get the show, its topics, and interviewees found on Google. It is search engine optimization on steroids. And it's working because this week, again, page views are trending up steeply as worries about Ukraine and the Russian invasion have the world looking for nuclear information and finding it 
on nuclear hot seat. But there's a problem. As you might imagine, this website upgrade has been terribly expensive, not only to create it, but to cover the monthly running expenses as well. The time has never been more important for our movement and what we have to say to be heard by the world. And Nuclear Hot Seat is an important part of our information flow. So yes, that's what I'm asking for, your help. It's needed to keep this new improved website up and running. So the time to donate to Nuclear Hot Seat is right now. We make it easy. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the smaller but still red Donate button. You can do this as a one-time donation or set up a recurring donation of as little as $5 a month. The same as you would pay here in the States for a nice cup of coffee and a tip to the barista. So buy Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee a month and we'll be able to keep helping you understand nuclear issues on a weekly basis. Know that whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. The war in Ukraine reached a benchmark on March 31st when Russian troops suddenly evacuated from the Chernobyl nuclear disaster site in the northern part of the country, near the border with Belarus. There have been lots of stories, lots of denials, and confusion as to what exactly is happening there and why that confusion exists. One of the people I've been getting a steady stream of reliable information from is Tim Deere Jones. Tim works as an independent marine pollution researcher and consultant with priority focus on hydrocarbons, marine radioactivity, and hazards associated with nuclear submarine deployment. He's been a guest on Nuclear Hot Seat several times. And our recent conversations and exchanges online about what's going on over there made me want to have a much more thorough conversation and be able to share it with you. Here, we construct a sequence of what's been happening regarding Chernobyl in this war and why the dangers from the Russian occupation of the site are far from over. I spoke with Tim Deere Jones on Monday, April 4, 2022. Tim Deere Jones, thanks so much for joining us on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's a pleasure to be talking to you again. We're going to be talking about Chernobyl in a way that brings people up to date. And as I have discovered, there are information sources available to you in Europe that perhaps have flown under the radar in the United States, or perhaps we've not yet had access to it. So this is about filling in the picture. First of all, what was the status of Chernobyl before Russia's invasion of Ukraine? For quite a while after the initial 1986 incident, it was a bit of a mess, but then it seemed to stabilize. And although there was a lot of radioactive material lying around and a huge 1,000 square mile exclusion zone around the Chernobyl works, things were beginning to look as if they might have been stabilizing. But things get very, got very dodgy in 2021 when it was discovered that there was actually fission going on in the basements beneath the RBMK reactor, which had exploded in the first place. They thought that all that was over and done with. But then they had a room called 305 stroke two in the basement beneath the Chernobyl reactor. And it was in there that it a lot of the rubbish from the reactor had collapsed into this basement and taken some of the corium with it, the core of the reactor. And it took a while, well, it took until 2021 
for them to get robotics in there and actually realized that there was actually a nuclear reaction, a fission reaction going on in that basement because along with the rubble and water and sand and graphite, they had uh, a lot of, uh, lot of uranium and zirconium fuel cladding, plus a lot of other radioactive nuclides. And there was a case where the neutrons were beginning to rise. And when the neutron levels go up, that's a sign of fission reaction, i.e. you've got neutrons striking the uranium atoms that are in there and splitting them. And therefore, you've got a nuclear reaction going on, much as you would have in a reactor. So that caused a bit of a problem. And that was being watched quite closely and quite carefully. So that was the situation leading up to February 24th, which is when Russia began invading Chernobyl. What happened then? Well, you guys in the States may have may have had news coverage of a very long column of military vehicles emerging from Belarus and striking towards Kiev in that initial mad rush that the Russians put on to grab Kiev and bring the whole thing to a quick end. And now that route that those that those huge columns took was actually launched through the Chernobyl exclusion zone. So you had thousands of personnel and thousands of military vehicles, some of them pretty damned heavy, like tanks and rocket launchers and so on and so on, trundling through an area which has been a almost complete exclusion zone, except for radiation scientists who were allowed in there to study how things were going on. But the general public and even high ups, you know, were not allowed in there because of the radiation risk to themselves. And also because the more activity there is, within a zone like that, the more risk there is of disturbing the radioactivity, resuspending dust material, sediment material and dead vegetation, starting fires and also picking up material which then sticks to the vehicles and is then transported along with the vehicles to wherever they're going and possibly eventually dumped somewhere a long way away from the Chernobyl exclusion zone. That was the initial situation. And at the time, radiation readings seven times above what was considered normal were registered. Yet the International Atomic Energy Agency, quote, insisted that radiation readings from the site were assessed to be low and in line with near background levels. How accurate would that be and how dangerous would seven times above background level actually be? Is that dangerous? Well, it depends on the definition of background for a start. If they're talking about the levels that they experience within the exclusion zone on a normal walkthrough, say, you know, with a handheld set at waist height, that's one thing. That's pretty high in comparison to how it would be in most of the rest of Ukraine or the UK or the US anyway, because it is an exclusion zone and the whole thing was heavily saturated with radioactivity. But of course, if you then are raising a dust, say, by driving vehicles through it, then it's going to become significantly worse. Now, people are told not to stay in the exclusion zone for more than a couple of hours under normal conditions, you know, without having a thousand tanks going past, churning up the dust or causing fires or what have you. So I think the IAEA were pulling their punches as they have over the entire Chernobyl issue. 
And I think for them, because they are the global representatives of the nuclear industry and their mandate, as it were, does include promoting and increasing the use of nuclear power throughout the world, I think they're always very cautious about saying anything particularly scary about any event, including events like this. You may have had speakers on your program before talking about the disparity between nuclear industry assessments of the health impacts of the original Chernobyl accident compared to what independent academics have found. And there is a big disparity. And the disparity plays out in the favour of the IAEA and the nuclear industry. So it always looks better for them than it does to the rest of us. And I suspect that that's what happens in these sort of conflict situations as well. As of the 25th of February, when Russia had already taken control of Chernobyl, suddenly the monitors went offline and Mm. no readings were possible. Have those monitors, to the best of our knowledge, been reestablished yet? Well, it would seem that towards the end of the affair, once the Russians began to feel that they had consolidated their hold over the Chernobyl site, that the, the monitors did come back on because there have been some comments from the Ukrainian authorities about rising and falling levels of radioactivity in response to actions that are going on inside the site. But it's all very hazy and vague because, of course, we're in a war scenario here and it is it has been a theatre of war. And we almost also should remember that the staff, the actual specialists who were operating the station at the time of the Russian attack and capture, weren't allowed to go home and break shift. And they were there for a very long time. So whoever is responsible for those readings may not have been working at 100% anyway, because they'd had no relief for a considerable length of time. And they were under great stress because they were basically captured enemy aliens as far as the Russian troops who were there were concerned. We'll get to the issue of the workers in a moment. But on March 9, Chernobyl lost power from the grid and had to go on backup diesel generators, which only had enough fuel on site for 48 hours of operation. Though, of course, the IAEA insisted that there was three days of fuel. Okay, a 50% increase. The danger being that without power, cooling systems do not work. Chernobyl is not an active nuclear site in that there's no splitting the atom. The reactors are not in operation there. But considering the amount of radioactivity there is in the material stored on that site, how dangerous was it that the power shut off? This is a really scary scenario, potentially, because, I mean, this is kind of what happened at Fukushima as well, that the actual cooling ponds in which used fuel elements were being stored while their radioactivity was allowed to decrease to make them safe to handle, those cooling ponds do require constant and careful monitoring and a constant throughput of cooling water. And if the power goes off, because this is what happened at Fukushima when the tsunami struck, power went down, there was no backup power, and, you know, apart from the accidents to the reactors, there were the accidents to the cooling ponds, which could not be cooled because the water could not be circulated because there was no energy to run the pumps. And you would think that an army that was going to attack and seize a nuclear power station belonging to an enemy would have the expertise, the equipment, and the scientific knowledge to 
immediately get hold of that situation, especially since it had its own troops stationed there after the attack and the seizure of the site. So it's it's a very dangerous situation, and it's absolutely astonishing that the Russian military was not prepared in any way to respond to that particular problem. The IAEA's response to this loss of power was completely in line with their trying to cover up and minimize the dangers there. Among other things, they said there would be sufficient heat removal without electricity supply. No critical impact on safety would result. Loss of power would likely add additional stress for about 210 staff who had not been able to rotate out for two weeks. But it was proposed that in the unlikely event of a release of any radiation, this would be to the immediate local area and therefore not pose any threat to Western Europe. And there would be no widely dispersed radioactive cloud. What do you say to that? I said, that's, that's the best case scenario, isn't it? That's what you would expect from an industry spokesman who didn't want to damage his industry in any way and wanted to minimize panic and fear and concern, especially since all the way across neighboring Europe at the moment, because of the hydrocarbon fuel problem, gas and, and oil, everybody's talking about the prospects of new nuclear. So IAEA, who are there to promote new nuclear, don't really want any particular damages to occur to the image. I know the IAEA had quite a checklist there. It's like they went down the roster for how do you cover up the fact that things have just gotten really scary. Yeah. Here's another piece. And this one did not make it to the states. I only learned about it this morning. And that is on March 24th, the state agency for the management of the exclusion zone said that one of the Chernobyl laboratories had been looted by marauders. What do we know about that? Well, we don't know very much about it. Um, but as you say, um, the, the, the Ukrainian state agency for the management of the exclusion zone did say that later on, other Ukrainian sources also said that during the advance, Russian looters had raided a radiation monitoring lab at Chernobyl and made off with radioactive isotopic material used to calibrate instruments. Pieces of radioactive waste, which are believed to have been stored from the original Chernobyl reactor accident as part of the ongoing examinations of what actually happened to the fuel. And the Ukrainian sources said that this material could be mixed with conventional explosives and would make a very useful dirty nuclear bomb that could be used to spread contamination over a considerable area, i.e. the sort of thing that they're using in Mariupol when they're attacking cities like that and trying to bring them to their knees. Uh, a dirty bomb like that could cause a lot of problem and a lot of panic and a lot of scare and be very demoralizing. So although we don't actually know what happened to that stuff, it may be that it's now been dumped somewhere in the forests during the retreat since other things have happened, um, which we will talk about later on. Going to the crew, the Ukrainians who were working at Chernobyl, in Chernobyl, the ones in charge of operating the facility itself, they were held hostage without a break without replacement crews, without the ability to rotate in other workers. And that's lasted for more than three weeks. Uh, the total that I saw was 600 hours. Mm. When they finally did get relief, only half of the crew was able to be replaced because of the number of workers coming in. 
What are the dangers of the crew of a nuclear facility being under such stressful, extended circumstances? Well, you would imagine that the dangers were quite extreme, wouldn't you? Because people who are doing a jolly stressful job anyway, and then they find themselves under armed guard from an enemy in an occupied building, and they're not allowed to go home. So as, as you highlighted in your question, the lack of sleep, lack of relaxation, inability to access decent facilities for washing toiletries, probably cooking and food as well, just means that you're, you know, the longer that sort of situation goes on, the less and less efficient people are going to become. You wouldn't have a, a scenario like that occurring in a nuclear submarine crew. They would be rotated smartly as required. Everybody would get a decent rest, decent wash, decent meal and downtime. But those guys who were trapped in Chernobyl for those first weeks, they didn't get that. They got 600 hours of, of hard slog. And it's just ridiculous, really. Again, you know, there should the Russian army, if they were going to go through Chernobyl and occupy the site, they should have brought technicians with them who could have done the work and substituted the civilian people and allowed the civilian people to go through. After all, the Chernobyl reactors were all Russian built and Russian designed, and it's not impossible. In fact, it's extremely likely that there are still technicians out there within the Russian state who could have operated the RBMK reactors and the site after the accident in a very effective way, but they didn't bother. So, you know, this is just another, perhaps another example of Putin's inability to plan this properly. I don't know, it's very difficult to reason how such a situation could arise, isn't it? But such a situation having arisen was extremely dangerous. Russia also, as of March 25th, was shelling the city of Slavudic, which is the place where the workers from Chernobyl yeah. were housed. And that was where replacements had to come from. And of course, they were under lockdown because they were being shelled and they were in danger. Yeah, I quite agree. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's, it's another adjunct to the farcical situation that we already had. It would be farcical, was it not so damn dangerous and really, really scary, not only for the Ukrainians, but for all their neighbours, much of Europe, and in fact, much of the Northern Hemisphere as well. Very dangerous situation breeding there. And I think we've been very lucky to get away with what we've got away with so far. Then suddenly, on March 31st, Ukrainian authorities told the IAEA that the Russian forces had, in writing, transferred control of the plant back to Ukrainian personnel. And also on the 31st of March, first reports emerged that Russian forces had received high doses of radiation while in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Now, the IAEA states that it had been unable to confirm these reports and that it was seeking further information to provide an independent assessment. But it's been coming forth from multiple sources. So I believe it is trustworthy. What do you think was behind Russia deciding, oh, hot potato, hands off? Well, the general feeling amongst the Ukrainians seems to be that they had decided to change tactics anyway and that their attempts to crush northern Ukraine had not been successful. And in fact, it turned into something of a disaster and a debacle. So they were going to withdraw anyway. But then it's quite evident that something was up in terms of those troops who had also been billeted and stationed in and around Chernobyl and in the exclusion zone. 
some Ukrainian sources, particularly the people who were working on the site, the, the reactor, the Chernobyl staff, the Ukrainians, appear to have interpreted what they saw from the Russian troops stationed at Chernobyl as a panic reaction to unforeseen circumstances. And in that particular instant, it's quite evident that there was some radiological content to the unforeseen circumstances. And maybe we'll have a look at that, how that panned out and how we know that with your next question. There were a few reports that I saw that made allusion to the fact that the Russian soldiers who were actually in the containment building were panicking, were perhaps right on the verge of rioting, though nobody wanted to use the R word, but it was implied in all of that. And that was perhaps behind this leaving as well. Since then, we've heard that many of the Russian soldiers have been toxed with high levels of radiation. And there is a report, be it confirmed or not, that at least one Russian soldier has died from radiation exposure. What was the source, to the best of our knowledge, or the best that we can put together, of their radiological exposure? And what has happened in the wake of that to those who've been identified as having been made radioactive? There's indisputable evidence that there was a lot of resuspension of sediment and dust and bits of leaf mold, etc., in the exclusion zone, the Red Forest, as a result of all the machinery and vehicle movement. And some sources are reporting that as many as 10,000 vehicles may have gone southwards and then back up northwards through that exclusion zone in order to get to Belarus and escape after the debacles around Kiev. So that provides a source of Certainly inhalation doses, you've got suspended material in the air and people are going to breathe it. You only have to watch those tanks, watch any tank at work on a dusty area, a dry area, because it has been pretty dry over there, to see how much suspended material can be left behind by the tank tracks in the air. And if you've got a column, then the guy in the first tank is probably going to escape, but everybody behind him is going to be to be getting cumulatively higher doses because the the second guy is getting a dose from one tank but then the guy in the third tank he's getting dust kicked up by two tanks and and so on and so on so i imagine that there was probably quite a high collective inhalation dose received by those troops going through that area then as a result of military activity and artillery activity a number of fires were started in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Now, that red forest is called red because it doesn't go green any longer because all the trees are dead. They're mostly coniferous, so they've got that sort of reddy look to them. And they burn very, very easily. The IAEA have again tried to downplay the effect of those fires. But through the years since the original Chernobyl accident, there have been a number of significant fires occurring in that exclusion zone. And the outcomes of those fires have been deeply and intensively studied by a number of well-known academics. And it's quite certain that following fires in the Chernobyl exclusion zone, you can get plumes going up very high. There's thermal lift from the heat of the fire will take ash 
and microscopic particles of radioactive material or irradiated material very high up into the atmosphere where they can then blow for hundreds if not thousands of miles and we know that fires between the original accident and today in the Chernobyl exclusion zone have carried material into the Baltic and the Baltic countries and through parts of Central Europe and indeed down across Turkey and parts of the Mediterranean as well. So for the IAEA to attempt to downplay that is a bit naive for those of us who who have read those other academic studies. Fires create dust. If the material that is burning is radioactivity, you will get radioactive dust. It'll go up and it will travel many, many miles before it falls out and inflicts somebody else. And thirdly, again, an example of the absolutely cavalier attitude of Russian commanders to their troops. These guys were told then to dig a series of defensive trenches around the Chernobyl site. So they're not only breathing the stuff in while they're riding around in their tanks, and perhaps breathing it in as a result of the fires they started, they're actually getting down and dirty in this radioactive soil. And they're digging trenches, they're getting their hands mucky, um, they're right in there, you know, really close to any dust they're creating. And then they're being expected to get down and occupy those trenches in defensive positions while on guard duty and so on and so on. So they're standing really close for long periods of time to the radioactive soil within the exclusion zone. So it's no wonder that a number of them are now suspected of having received significant doses of radioactivity. And what we do know, we have the word of the Ukrainian people who were retained, as you so ironically put it, in the Chernobyl site to run the site, under the control of the military, they have told us that there was evidently some sort of a panic began to take place and people were showing signs of being ill and increasing concern was rising, giving rise, as you say, to this potential for desertion, argument with officers and possible rioting and mutiny. So what eventually happened that um, an employee of the public council at the state agency of Ukraine for the exclusion zone, again, said that Russian troops have clearly been taken in hospital vehicles to Belarus in a town called Gomel. And this is a center for radiation medicine, which was set up after the Chernobyl accident in order to provide close cooperation with international experts from medical and research institutions from adjacent and distant foreign countries. So we know these guys have been taken there and there is photography which has not yet been verified but it does show russian military buses with the z and the v marked on them taking people uh, hauling up outside this gomel nuclear medicine establishment and there was one picture which actually showed somebody being taken out of this bus on a stretcher and carried into the medical facility now you've got to ask yourself okay so why if the russian troops as they say they are are retreating from the northern ukraine and redeploying elsewhere why some of them are being taken away in medical buses and ambulances and put into not a military hospital but into a radiation medicine 
center. So I think for me, the story ties up pretty well. And I think although we don't have 100% verification, it all looks pretty, pretty coherent and pretty genuine to me at this stage. There are two areas of study that have been done about the migration of radioactive materials from a site of known contamination off that site. And they are parallel to what's going on in Chernobyl or has been going on in Chernobyl. The first is at the Hanford site in Washington state, which Mm. is arguably the most contaminated, certainly the most radiological site in the Western hemisphere. And there was a structure that collapsed and they had to clean it out. It was an old one. And it was discovered that radioactive material from the workers' clothing, from their shoes, whatever, had migrated into their cars, into their homes. Of course, these were statements that were completely discounted by the nuclear industry, by the government, by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And it took a privately funded study to go in and take samples of dust and out of car air filters and other places to identify the fact that, yes, there was radioactive material. Here's where it was found. And that was just the places that were studied, not the rest of them. The other one being the Santa Susana Field Lab here in Southern California, actually only 30 miles from where I live, where I believe it was three years ago, the Woolsey fire broke out on that property. And this is a place where Rocketdyne used to test rocket engines and rocket fuel, but also there were a number of smaller nuclear reactors that were not in containment vessels that had accidents. There were burn pits for radioactive materials. And at least in one instance, we know that there was an accident with a meltdown and Mm. again, no containment. And what was discovered is that the smoke from the Woolsey fire spread the radioactivity out. Again, government, state government, EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, all of them said, eh, not a problem, forget about it. With the first reports of no danger coming less than 10 hours after the fire broke out on the property. Again, it took citizen scientists and it took an investigation that was funded by the public to go in and take samples in all these places. And what was shown is that radioactive particles were found as far as nine miles away containing plutonium carried in the smoke. So we have proof already that these methods of dispersion are real, do happen. They may be invisible, but that doesn't make them any less real. Yeah, I'm with you. You're quite right, Libby. The parallels between the Chernobyl scenario and the Woolsey fire, and indeed the Chernobyl transport issue and the Hanford issue are astonishing and perfect fits, really. It's a matter of scale, admittedly, because there was more activity at Chernobyl and the fires are bigger because, I mean, the fires can be thousand hectare fires. And if fires occur on radioactive ground and involve contaminated man-made material and contaminated natural materials, then that radioactivity is going to go up in the air and it's going to go where the wind blows. Anybody who tries to convince us as the general public that is not the case is a liar, I'm afraid. Either that or extremely poorly informed and well-programmed with surgically implanted talking points. Yeah. Nuclear industry promulgate falsehoods, but the politicians don't really know what's going on anyway. They just accept what they're told, don't they? 
as this story moves forward, and of course, we will continue to follow it for Nuclear Hot Seat, there are three questions which remain for me. First of all, are the fires on site out or are they continuing? I believe that the Ukrainian authorities were eventually able to get it. I mean, initially, they couldn't access the fires to do firefighting work. They were prevented by the military situation and Russian troops. But I think by now they've got onto it and the weather has changed. I think the wind changed as well. I believe the fires may now be either extinct or nearing extinction. The second one is... Are the radiation monitors back in operation? And if so, is it possible to access the readings? At the moment, there's no evidence that they are back on in operation or that they're accessible. Not quite sure what's going on there. Again, it's the fog of war, I guess. I know the other reactor site that was attacked at Zafaricha, they got that back online again pretty quickly. But I think the situation at Chernobyl in that respect remains unclear. And the third point, and again, this is one that kind of went under the radar and people are trying to go, no, no, it's not an issue, was the report on the munitions dump, the old weapons, the whatever they were, that Russia was stockpiling at Chernobyl somewhere in proximity to the containment vessel and whether indeed that is still there whether Russia took it with them when they left, or whether there has been any type of control exerted over it by Ukrainian officials? I would imagine that it's still there. If it was largely discarded, let's not forget now that where the Ukrainian troops have reoccupied areas, they've discovered that heavy mining has gone on. So the Russians are not worried about leaving dangerous munitions behind them. In fact, it's part of a deliberate policy. So I don't think they would have taken significant amounts of dumped or discarded weaponry away, because let's not forget that their vehicle strength has been severely depleted by Ukrainian action. They haven't got the tanks and the trucks that they came in with. So I doubt that they were fully capable of removing all the munitions. Now, again, as a result of what we can call the fog of war, that's an issue which hasn't been cleared up. We know it was there, that dump site. But I expect the Ukrainian authorities are proceeding very carefully and with great great deal of sensitivity and caution into that area to find out what's what. And I guess I hopefully in due course we'll find out. But at the moment, no particular information on that issue either. But what we do have, as far as the region around the Chernobyl site is concerned, the damage has already been done. We've had the big forest fires caused by military shelling. We've had the dust suspension caused by the transit of thousands of vehicles. And we've had the trench digging. We've had the robbery of material from a laboratory. All of this seems to me to indicate that now there are multiple pathways for that radioactivity which has been disturbed to be spread not only over the Ukraine but also over immense distances as a result of the fire and over less large distances as a result of dust, mud, etc. being transported around the place on the Russian vehicles which have retreated from the Chernobyl zone. If they were digging trenches in the red zone, in the red forest zone, Is it possible that, A, 
they were drinking water from there. B, they were perhaps being hungry, seeing animals around, shooting animals to kill and cook, and then lighting little fires around so that they could cook the rabbit or cook the whatever they had killed over the open fire like any good scavenging campers would do. Yeah, I'd go with that. My feeling is that this scenario for those soldiers billeted and based there would have given rise to doses of Chernobyl radioactivity via three different pathways. So obviously the inhalation pathway. You know, if you've been digging a trench and then you're going to smoke a, smoke a cigarette or have the Russian equivalent of a sandwich, you're not necessarily going to be taken to the wash house to wash your dirty paws, are you? You're just going to eat a sandwich, smoke a cigarette, cook up a tin of beans or whatever the Russian equivalent is, and you may well then find yourself getting dietary doses of radioactivity because you've got this smoke and the dust in your hair, on your clothing, and so on and so on. So that's going to fall into your food and or your drink. And then you've got the contact doses because if you're sitting on a tank that's covered with radioactive dust, okay, you're going to put your hands down to leave yourself around. So you're going to get a contact dose. Same way digging the trenches. And it appears that, you know, as I said earlier on, these guys had no radiological protection equipment. So I think they will have been well and truly dosed. Um, we will never know because plainly the Russian Federation is ruled by an extremely secretive cadre who seem to have control of all media outputs. We're never really going to know what happened to those soldiers. But I, I you know, for me, pretty safe to assume that they will have got triple pathway doses and that some of them are going to be very ill. You know, the long-term health effects like cancers, etc., etc., are going to be very high amongst that group of fellows. There's no evidence that there was any decontamination equipment traveling with the Russian forces, apart from those poor soldiers who've been taken to the Gomel Radiation Medical Facility in Belarus. There's no evidence that there's any decontamination of the military vehicles that have left northern Ukraine and are now probably headed for elsewhere in Russia or round to east and south Ukraine for further attacks. So I think, you know, we've had another dispersion, radiation dispersion scenario of some significance taking place in and around the Chernobyl zone as a result of Russian military activity. And we can probably expect to wait quite a long time before we get the full picture. It's going to be long enough for the Ukrainians to tell us how things are within Ukraine, whether we will ever be told how things are in Russia with the Russian soldiers and the contaminated vehicles and equipment. We may never know. And we will only know whether there have been long distance impacts as a result of those military caused fires in the exclusion zone if and when national academics across Europe are prepared to have a have a go at investigating what happens in their own country. And I mean, it's interesting to note that we've had considerable periods of easterly wind here in the UK blowing from the continent, loosely from the southeast this winter and during this whole episode. And there's been no evidence that anybody's been particularly attempting to find out whether we have anything from Chernobyl falling out on the UK or indeed anywhere else in Europe at the moment. Although some countries are quicker off the mark than the UK 
because they're a bit more independent minded when it comes to accepting the blandishments of the International Atomic Energy Agency. So we might see some of our European neighbours doing a bit of this work slightly more quickly and effectively than we will see in the UK. It's all up in the air, Libby. We don't know. The information is not there. The Ukrainians are going to be trying hard to gather what they can, but they've got a lot of other stuff on their plate to deal with. All this, I hate to be so subjective about it, but all of this plays very well into the hands of the nuclear industry. You know, the less information we have, the happier they are, as far as I can see. Now, that's a very aggressive statement to make, but I've made it and I stick by it. Tim, I always appreciate the specificity of your information, your articulateness, and I want to thank you for having done the background work to help us fill in some of the pictures and get a consistent timeline of what's been happening in Chernobyl, bringing us up to now. We'll see what happens with Chernobyl and the radiation and Zaporizhia and all the West one day at a time. Mm. For now, thank you so much for coming on board and being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Thank you very much. That was independent marine pollution researcher and consultant Tim Deer Jones in the UK. We recorded on Monday, April 4th, 2022, and Tim is continuing to keep us up to date on what's known about the aftermath of the Russian occupation of Chernobyl, its dangers to the workers in the plant, as well as the Russian soldiers, and all that's new from the International Atomic Energy Agency. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. We wish to acknowledge a change in status for Tom Carpenter, who was founder and director of Hanford Challenge in Washington State. Tom has fought for a safe and effective cleanup of Hanford, which was one of the sites for the U.S. Manhattan Project, which created the first atomic bombs. And after decades of hard work, he is stepping back from his position to become senior advisor to the group, which will give him the flexibility to offer strategic advice and work on special projects to hold Hanford accountable. Tom has been a guest on the show many times, and we will miss his precision and insights in explaining exactly what the problems are at Hanford. And we would like to welcome Nicholas Peterson, who is the new executive director of Hanford Challenge. Peterson's passion and commitment for this work is grounded by the fact that he grew up in Walla Walla, which is right next to the Hanford site, and which was showered with radioactive fallout for decades. He has represented and continues to represent important Hanford whistleblowers who need assistance and advocacy skills. Welcome to Nicholas Peterson, Executive Director of Hanford Challenge, and trust me, we will be talking. Last week, we discussed the need for those who oppose nuclear to create our own echo chamber of talking points on social media. This is important, so I want to move it along and give you some prompts as to how you can participate. Even if you only post on social media once a week, it helps us build visibility for our perspective. So focusing on Twitter to start, if you don't have a Twitter account, please get one so you can participate. I provide a tweet about Nuclear Hot Seat every week on our email, which goes out if you're on our database. So go to the website and look for the yellow box, sign up there. But we need to move this beyond the show. So here's a tweet 
based on this week's show content. Of course, you're always free to write one of your own, but this is one way to get started to make it easy. And here's the tweet. We'll have it on the website as well. Nuclear Ukraine. Irradiated Russian troops spread Chernobyl radioactive particles from clothes, shoes, bodies, wherever they go. IAEA minimizes risks, doesn't even confirm soldiers admitted to Gomel Radmed Center when photos prove it. Throw in hashtags on nuclear Ukraine, Chernobyl, radioactive, IAEA, and Gomel. Or just copy and paste it from the website. That's the easy way to go. Put it into your Twitter account. Click send. You've done it. One a week. That alone will help us. And of course, you are always free to write one or more of your own and post as often as you like. Let's stir things up on social media, shall we? This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 5th, 2022. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, we make it so easy. Just go to the website, nuclearhotseat.com, scroll down looking for the yellow box, and when you find it, put in your first name and email address. Click on send, and there it goes. It means that every week you will get one email, which contains the link to the show and a short description of its content, and you will get it as soon as we post. You can also sign up on your favorite podcast channel. We are absolutely everywhere. So don't take the risk of missing any week's nuclear hot seat and feel free to forward it to your friends. Now, you're also part of this process if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a thought that I should be interviewing somebody, but I haven't interviewed them yet. Well, bring it to my attention. Send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to the website, nuclearhotseat.com, and look for the now modest-sized red donate button. Anything will help, and we will really appreciate the support that you give us. We can't do it without you. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Harvestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. You can quote or cite me or any of my guests, as long as you credit Nuclear Hot Seat and my guest organization. This is Libby Halevi, producer host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that luck is a terrible safety plan when it comes to anything nuclear. There you go. You've just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because truly, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.